Listen to Psalm 119, verse 18. Just listen. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful or wondrous things out of your law. When we say the law of God, Christians range in their thinking all over the map, really. On one side of the spectrum, we think of the law of God as some sort of legalism and we're suspicious of it and we're scared of it and we're even angry at it. I am not a legalist. I don't do the law of Moses. I only do the New Testament. Then on the other end of the on the other end of the spectrum, you have essentially those who completely disregard the Old Testament law as as irrelevant. It doesn't doesn't matter. Uh, I I may be legalistically suspicious of it. I can be legalistically bound to it. I can be disregarding it altogether. And so there's all kinds of variations of how we think about the law. But the writer of Psalm 119 was convinced that there are wondrous things in the law of God. And that's what I hope to demonstrate this evening as we continue our introductory series to the Pentateuch. I want to address, before we reach out, reach to these texts, I want to address some areas of, I think, difficulty and maybe even confusion for the Christian. And one of those that we want to talk about tonight is how we interact with the Old Testament law. How do we do that? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13. And while you're turning, let me read to you the conclusion of a short essay that one Old Testament scholar wrote about the Old Testament law. And here is his conclusion. Many of the Old Testament laws are still in effect because they were not replaced by Jesus' death on the cross. And I would tend to think that represents the average position of the evangelical church. That that's our position because we do believe some things from the law. We tend to believe in tithing. We tend to believe in Sabbath very often. And certainly we believe in the Ten Commandments. I don't know any Christian that will walk around saying, I don't believe in the Ten Commandments. And so the question, I suppose, would be, well, which ones are still in effect? Which laws are we bound to? Well, let's, let's try one. Deuteronomy 13, beginning in verse 6. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the other, earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he has sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. This is saying that if your wife says, let's go to the Mormon church, that you're supposed to kill her. How about that law? Is that one still in effect? Is that a law that we are under? Well, let's see if it is. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to pretend that we're getting ready to take a flying lesson. We're going to learn to fly an airplane and no pilot instructor would just put you in the cockpit and say, fire it up and let's see what happens. We're not going to do that. Instead, you get a little special instruction first before you take your first flight and before you're given the controls of the plane. But once you're in the plane and once you're uh, in, the, in the controls of the cockpit, the view is magnificent and it's worth all the trouble to do some preliminary learning. So tonight, let's do a basic lesson in learning to fly the airplane known as the law of God. Those portions of the Pentateuch which give God's instructions and his rules. So first we'll do basic orientation. Then we'll do specific instruction and then we'll fly the airplane and we'll apply what we've learned. So we have to do some, some orientation up front for just a little while. So first, basic orientation. This is where we point out the basics. Those big, long, flat things, those are wings. And the propeller, that, that round thing that goes around and around, it points forward. 
and don't get in the plane without a parachute. And there's all kinds of things that are just basic. So let me give you four parts to just our, our basic orientation. First, the law for the Israelites was not about earning salvation. The law for the Israelites was not about earning salvation. The law was, however, the means by which God's people were to live out their relationship to God as a witness to a watching world. They were, as I pointed out last week, to be a kingdom of priests, those who point the world to God by virtue of their behavior. And so the law existed to make them different to allow the Israelites to live a life that was different from the people around them, and they are living their life on the stage of the world. And their obedience or their disobedience, either one would prompt observation, it would prompt questions from the nations of the world. This is the basic question that the law was to prompt. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, this is the question, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. There there wasn't one. Only Israel had a set of laws given by the living and true God. Moses even predicted that someday when Israel would nationally reject God, that when God would judge Israel with the promised afflictions if they rebelled, he said in Deuteronomy 29, beginning of verse 24, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them. So the law of God was not a means of salvation. It was the expression of salvation. It was the expression that I am a follower of Yahweh. Second, on our just basic orientation here, We don't divide the law into relevant laws and irrelevant laws. We don't divide the law into relevant laws and irrelevant laws. The law I just read you from Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 and following, we don't say, all in favor of making that relevant for today, raise your hand. All in favor, or not in favor, don't raise your hand. We don't do that. And this is important for us because if you do any study at all on your own in the Pentateuch, invariably you're going to find scholars and and many many scholars dividing the law of god as given in three categories they will say and, and this is the prevalent belief among old testament scholars they would say that the law is divided into the civil law those laws governing how the country was to run divided into ceremonial law those laws governing religious behavior and sacrifice. You have civil law, ceremonial law, and then finally you have moral law. Those laws governing personal and relationship morals and ethics. This was an artificial division which was first proposed by Thomas Aquinas. He was a a Catholic priest in the 13th century. It was carried on by John Calvin and by reformers who believed in one overarching covenant of grace which bound together the Old and the New Testaments. To maintain this continuity, they would say, they would say that the the civil and the ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Christ, superseded by Christ. We would agree with that, by the way. All of the civil and the ceremonial laws, if you want to go with that, were fulfilled by Christ. But then they would say that the moral law is still binding on us today that that's still binding for us. Well, there's some problems with this view of the civil, ceremonial, and moral law. First of all, and I'll give you four problems. First, these three categories aren't found anywhere in Scripture. There's no hint in any text. It's a completely artificial distinction. And let me give you an example. Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. And this is familiar to us. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what would we say? Well, we'd say that's moral law. That's applicable to the Christian, of course. But the very next verse says... You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Meaning if you're wearing a cotton polyester blend tonight, you're a heretic. You are out of the will of God. So we would say, oh, well, no, hold on. That's just ceremonial. That distinguishes Israel from the nations. 
But there's nothing in the text that says one of those laws is universal and one of those is temporal. There's nothing there that says that. It's purely an arbitrary distinction, which brings us to the second problem. There's no universal agreement on how to categorize those various laws. And that's a problem because how am I supposed to know which laws are binding on me if nobody can agree on which ones I'm supposed to follow? That becomes a difficulty for us. A third problem. If we are essentially discarding the civil law and the ceremonial law and saying it's no longer binding, no longer useful, how does this mesh with 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness? How does that mesh? Well, it doesn't. There's one more problem, and this is the one I think is the best argument. You can't divide the law into moral laws and non-moral laws. All of God's laws are moral laws because to break them by definition is to violate God's holiness, which inherently is an act of immorality. In other words, if you don't love your neighbor, that is an act of immorality. And if you wear a cloth made of two different types of of cloth, then you are immoral. Why? Because God commanded it and you decided to go against it. And so we, we can't make that division. And so I would reject those divisions. Third, in our basic orientation, and we will get to the airplane, we'll get to fly it. The law is given in covenant context for a specific situation. The law is given in covenant context for a specific situation. 600,000 men, their wives, their children, camped at the base of Mount Sinai, and they received the law of God He had just delivered them from their enslavement to Egypt. Why did he allow them to be enslaved and then rescue them? Why not just let them grow into a nation and and go on from there? Well, he allowed them to be enslaved and then rescued them so that he would, in their eyes, have a moral and ethical right to rule them and they would have a moral and ethical obligation to follow him. And this type of relationship would be one that they would be very familiar with in the ancient Near East. It's often called the suzerain-vassal relationship. Suzerain, the suzerain nation, and it's spelled, if you're interested, S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N, like Susie Rain. But the suzerain nation or the suzerain king, that was the stronger one, the bigger one, the, the big guy, the bully, so to speak, of the nations. And the vassal nation was the little one, the helpless one. And very often, the suzerain nation had conquered the vassal nation. We, By the way, we have an example of this in our New Testament. We have Israel as the vassal nation and Rome as the suzerain nation. And so we, we've seen this in the Bible. But the vassal, the smaller, was expected to obey the laws of the suzerain. And, and the vassal was expected to appear before the suzerain on a regular basis. They were expected to reaffirm their loyalty and submission to the suzerain. And, and in return, this wasn't always a bad deal from the big nation to the little nation. In return, the suzerain would protect and provide for and bless the vassal nation. So if you have this little bitty vassal nation that's been conquered by the suzerain and another bad guy is coming after the little nation, they can go and say, suzerain nation, come save us. And a giant army would come and save them. And so it could turn into a good deal. But once in a while, the vassal nation would decide, you know, we're tired of being the vassal nation. We're not going to pay our taxes anymore. And so what would happen? The suzerain would issue an ultimatum that the vassal would either make amends or face severe consequences. A big part of the sacrificial system of Israel was that Israel, the vassal, so to speak, was atoning for her offenses against the suzerain, Yahweh, to restore the peace and the harmony of relationship before them. God expected his people to live according to his ways and how would he reward obedience? I originally wanted to read this whole text, but it's so long, I don't have time. But Deuteronomy 28 lists financial blessings, family blessings, national blessings, protective blessings, prosperity and joy. If you read the blessings of Deuteronomy 28, you say, that's the society I want to live in where everybody has all that they need. So what's the importance of understanding the law was given in a specific covenant context? Well, it's important because our fourth kind of basic orientation here, the law is part of a covenant, 
which is no longer in effect. It's part of a covenant which is no longer in effect. If you don't understand this, then we'll keep using a cafeteria approach to the law to pick and choose the ones we think are still good, are still valid. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, So then the law was, past tense, our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law was the guardian of the Jews, not instead of faith, but as an expression of faith and and to lead us to faith as well. Some translations say that the law was a tutor or a teacher to show us our sinful ways. But we're not under that guardian. We're not under that law. We came by faith without obligation to the Old Testament law. Hebrews 8 verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It doesn't mean it's bad. Jesus said that the law is good, and we believe that. It just means that it's not, it's not in effect anymore. And when I was a little kid, I had a bicycle, and I loved that bicycle, and it was a good bicycle, and it's still probably a good bicycle somewhere. But I don't need that bicycle anymore. It was a good thing, but I, I've moved on to other things. Dr. Daniel Hayes points out, Quote, the Old Testament law specified the terms by which Israel could receive blessings in the land under the Old Covenant. If the Old Covenant is no longer valid, how can the laws that make up that covenant still be valid? If the Old Covenant is obsolete, should not also the laws in that Old Covenant be seen as obsolete? And of course, the big question we always have is, well, what about the Ten Commandments? They are the core laws upon which all the other 600 plus laws in the Old Testament are based. They're not part, they are rather part of the Old Covenant, and as such, they're not binding. So if somebody asks you, are you bound by the Ten Commandments as a Christian, technically speaking, no, you're not. Now, before you panic, do I need to change microphones? Before you, and if you've been at Grace for any period of time, you know this, All but the fourth commandment, the law of the Sabbath, have been reiterated in the New Testament. And so if you say, are you under the reiteration of the nine commandments? Yes, I've never been asked that question. Why is the law of the Sabbath not carried over? Because the Sabbath was the sign of the old covenant. So, our orientation, the law for the Israelites was not about earning spiritual salvation by keeping a set of rules, We don't divide the law into relevant and irrelevant laws. The law is given in a covenant context for a specific situation, and the law is part of a covenant which is no longer in effect. All right, I'm going to let you a little closer to the airplane now. Now for some specific instructions. Now, we're going to do this in the form of questions to ask, and what you will have by the time we're done this evening is really a how-to guide on how to study the Old Testament law And I hope you'll find this useful. So we're going to walk through these questions, five of them, and then we're going to do some examples. We'll actually get in the airplane and fly it. First question, what kind of law is it? What kind of law is it? Now, I disagree with the categorization of laws as civil, ceremonial, or moral because it divides the law into relevant and irrelevant. And I reject that with every core, every fiber of my being. We can, however, make some useful distinctions and divide them into categories on the basis of all of God's laws being relevant, not binding legally on us before God, but authoritatively relevant for life and practice. And so I want to give you some of these distinctions, some of these categories, and you don't even really have to try to remember these because all you have to do is simply ask the question, what kind of law is it? But here are some useful kinds of laws. I'll go through these quickly because they're pretty intuitive. I think they're pretty logical. I'll give you eight of them. First one we might call loyalty laws. Loyalty laws. These are laws which demand loyalty and allegiance to Yahweh alone. We would say that the first commandment is a loyalty law. Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's a loyalty law. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Considering the fact that Israel was the only monotheistic, one God-worshipping nation on earth, that's pretty important. 
Second category we would just call maybe criminal laws. Criminal laws. These are specific offenses which are contrary to the functioning of a healthy community. Laws against murder, against theft, against immoral financial practices, against moving the boundary lines of your, of your neighbor. You know, we have, we have fancy ways of marking boundaries now. Back then, they just put a big rock there. And so if you, in the middle of the night, moved that rock 100 yards, you just gained $1,000 worth of land. So that was criminal law. You had case laws. Describe very, very specific situations and how they should be resolved. These are very specific situations. I mean, if, you're, if your neighbor's goat crawls under your house and eats the foundation. I mean, really, really specific things. I'm just making that one up. But, for example, Exodus 22 says, What to do if a fire breaks out on your property, jumps the property line, and burns up the crops of your neighbor? What are you supposed to do? Well, it's very simple. You pay for it. But all of these specific situations... Then you have family laws, family laws which regulate relationships and roles, how you're to relate to your husband, to your wife, to your children, to those even in your household. How you're, The Bible doesn't condone or condemn slavery because that's not the point of the Bible. But the Old Testament does show that Israel was the only people on earth commanded to treat slaves with, you, with humaneness and with kindness and with generosity. And so those would be included in family laws. You have sacrificial laws, and these are obvious. These regulate the the how and the when and the why of the various sacrifices. And you have the symbolic laws, and I want to hang on this for a moment because we're not used to these. The symbolic laws describe the system of unclean and clean. And these were meant to be object lessons to Israel. And this is something that I think it's important for you to understand. If you were a, if you were dirty in your sin you didn't just go make sacrifice for that sin first you had to be made clean in order to go make sacrifice do we have a do we have a a similar parallel to that in the church yes you confess sin before you worship and so there is that uh, that understanding of clean and unclean But the object lesson with these things was to remind Israel that you're different. You're set apart. There are distinctions. Leviticus 11 through 15 gives a detailed description of clean and unclean things. There's a big section, something the Old Testament is famous for, on clean and unclean animals. And it gives this description of what you can and cannot eat. And so if we were to go through this, you would find, you want a hamburger? No problem, but no bat burgers. We're not going to do that. Um, You want to have fish? No problem, but no owl hors d'oeuvres. You have a list of the things that are okay, things that are not okay. You can eat fish as long as it has scales. If it's in a shell, too bad. And if you love shrimp, then that's too bad for you too. So it's a a distinction. It's not... It's not things that are inherently immoral or wrong. It's not that that an owl is somehow immoral and a fish is moral. It's just God giving a list of specifications of saying, if you love me, you will follow these to show that you're distinct. You have other details of the activities of life which made you unclean, childbirth and disease and normal bodily processes. And you had to follow God's prescription to become ceremonially clean before you could go worship. Those are symbolic laws. Then you had what we could call sacred calendar laws. Sacred calendar laws. You know what I love about Israel? And I, I, I cherish the fact that this will be the case again in the millennial kingdom. They live their whole life around the calendar that God gave them. They live their life around the weekly calendar, which was, which was punctuated by Sabbath. And they live their life around the annual calendar, which was punctuated by sacrifices and feasts and festivals. In other words, the sacred calendar laws established the rhythm of your life. And they told you what to do and when. And then finally, we have what you would, we would just call the compassionate laws. Compassionate laws, how people in the community were to treat one another. Uh, for example, Leviticus 19, beginning of verse 9, says that when you harvest your field, you leave some of it behind for the stranger and for the poor and for the, the traveler. So it, there were all kinds of laws about being compassionate with one another. And by the way, what this did was it made it to where the compassionate laws made it to where the, the government didn't have to provide for anyone. The people were to provide for one another. 
So the first question, what kind of law is it? That's the hardest one. The next ones are easier. The second question, what is the purpose of this law in Israel's context? What's the purpose of this law in Israel's context? And this is the question that Christians tend to ignore or miss or not understand. So what kind of situation was the law designed to prevent? What was it designed to promote? Who would benefit from the law? Why? What values or moral principles are underlying this law? What was the point? What was the objective? For example, is the point of Exodus 20 verse 13, you shall not murder, is the point to say that the taking of all human life by another human being is against God's law? No, that can't be since there are a dozen and a half reasons for the death penalty given in the law of God. So you have to understand the law in Israel's context, in their time. Then we get to a third question, and this is really kind of our bridge question. What is the universal principle found in this law? Now, I picked a law just because there is some almost an air of ridiculousness to it and some humor. You shall not go up by the steps I'm sorry, you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness not be exposed on it. Let me put that in Texan. Don't go without underbritches to worship God. Now, why is that there? Well, what's the principle? In other words, don't make steps to go to the altar because everyone's going to see what no one wants to see. Well, the principle is that we live in a sinful world. We, we don't live in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. We live in the world now where we are covered. And like Adam and Eve, when they had sinned instinctively, they covered themselves because sin now has introduced shame into the human experience. So the principle is, is don't be a distraction in times of worship. Don't act in a way which draws attention to yourself and away from the Lord, in a way which forgets that we must have our sin covered, that we have a sin issue. And so that's the principle. And we ask a fourth question. How do we understand this law in a contemporary context? We've gone from Israel's context. Now we're bridging with a principle. And how do we understand this law in a contemporary context, in, in our world? The Old Covenant context is a nation. It's a theocracy in which those laws are binding and they are the governing force of society. The church of Jesus Christ is not a theocracy. Israel was told to resist all other nations and to not allow other governments to rule them. But we're told just the opposite. In Romans 13, we're to submit to the human government, to whatever government we're under, as appointed by God, Why? Because God's people today are not defined nationally. We're defined supernaturally. So that all who follow the Lord Jesus Christ and all who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that's our definition in this stage in history, in this dispensation. And so certain elements of the Old Covenant legal system simply don't apply to us because they require a state. They require a government to carry them out. Israel imposed the death penalty for certain violations because the offender was was putrefying and tainting the chosen national people of God. But there's no nation that can claim to be God's nation today. The new community of Jesus Christ is not currently at this moment uh, focused on one chosen nation. It's centered on all the nations and inclusive of all the people groups of the world. For example, the church does not impose the death penalty. We don't impose the death penalty. Now, I would point out that God imposes the death penalty, and he will do that. He did this with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 11 says that God had killed those who were taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. But the church doesn't impose penalties save one, and that is expulsion from the fellowship of the local church for those who will not uh, continue to deal with their sin. One more question, and then we'll get into the airplane. What New Testament passages explain this principle to the new covenant community? What New Testament passages explain this principle to the new covenant community now that we're under the law of Christ? So does the New Testament affirm the underlying principle of the law? Now, I'm going to assert that the answer to that question is always yes. There will always be New Testament passages that that affirm the principle. Okay, 
You've made it through basic orientation and specific instructions. Now we get to get into the cockpit. What I want to do here is just do kind of a little test flight. And we're going to fly through three passages. And we're going to go through these. And I purposefully picked these randomly just to show that this, this template will always work. And we're going to revisit three passages I've already mentioned. So let's start with Deuteronomy 13. We'll revisit where we started. Deuteronomy 13 Beginning in verse 6, if your brother, the son of your mother, or the son of your, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is at your, as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and all Israel shall hear and fear, and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. Now, I'm not going to do just a a detailed exposition of this. I just want to overlay our five questions. First question, what kind of law is it? Loyalty law, is it criminal law, case law, family law, symbolic law, sacred calendar law, compassionate law? What kind is it? Well, this passage details a situation in which a, a family member is trying to entice you to worship false gods. And considering how important family was in the ancient Near East, family was everything This is describing an extremely high-pressure situation because you always stick with family. But even though this is in a family context, I would classify this as a loyalty law. Israel was not to worship other gods. And how serious was that offense? Not only was the death penalty prescribed by stoning, but the family member who had resisted being enticed to idol worship, they had to throw the first stone. Husband or wife, son, daughter, father, mother. Second question, what's the purpose of this law in Israel's context? What's the purpose of this law? Israel is alone in the world. It's the only nation on earth that is monotheistic. The one God nation in Israel alone was mandated to demonstrate the true and living God to the polytheistic nations which surrounded them. And as a matter of fact, the cry of allegiance, the cry of loyalty of, of the Israelite was found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one meaning Yahweh is the only God, and to him alone we will be loyal. But if every family in Israel had a niece or a nephew or a wife or a husband or a daughter that was off worshiping other gods, they're no longer a loyal nation. They've been infiltrated. They've been compromised. They are not God's nation anymore. So this was very important to them that when that one little weed of an idol worshiper came up, it had to be dealt with. Third question, what is the universal principle found in this law? This law just doesn't doesn't just say if anyone tries to lead you into sin to worship false gods. It says if your family member, the ones that you love, the ones that are closest to you, if they try to subvert your faith, even those in closest relationship to you are secondary to your total loyalty to God. They're secondary. No family member has the right to ask you to sin in the name of family relationship. They don't have that right. Now, having gone over that bridge, we can ask the fourth question. How do we understand this law in a contemporary context? No family member has the right to ask you to sin in the name of family relationship. No husband, for example, has the right to demand in the name of submission that his wife not fellowship with the people of God. If a woman says... I want to be a member of the church, but my husband will not join any church. What do we tell her? We do not say submit to your husband because the Bible commands you to be the member of a member of a church. So you join the church anyway. A husband does not have the right to ask his wife to not follow God. He doesn't have that right. The principle stays the same. Sometimes a person may have to make a choice between loyalty to the family, loyalty to the Lord. We've seen that in our own church. And the one who will not be loyal to the Lord ultimately will be shown not to belong to the Lord. Now, we don't impose the death penalty, but we do identify as harmful to the church those who would try to subvert 
the faith of even their own family members. When I was a little kid, my childhood was spent, a good deal of it spent in a very chaotic state. My mom didn't take us to church. And I remember, I think I was nine or ten years old, and we were visiting my grandparents. And my grandmother pulled me aside. And she loved the Lord. And she said, if your mom won't take you to church, you ride your bicycle to church anyway, because obeying God is more important. You know what? She was right. She was right. And we overlay the fifth question. What New Testament passage explained this principle to the new covenant community? Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now understand that when Jesus uses the idea of hatred, it's not speaking of the emotion of hate. It's not speaking of of conjured up bitterness or disgust. He's speaking of loyalty. If you can't choose me over your family, you cannot follow me. That's what he's saying preached a whole sermon on this topic. In Matthew chapter 10, he said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The church in Pergamum, as recorded in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, Jesus indicted them for allowing heretical teaching to come into their church. And, And now the purity of God's people was being tainted. And Jesus warned them, Revelation 2.16, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So, are we bound to the law of Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 11? No, that's Old Covenant. We're New Covenant believers, but that law is as fresh and meaningful in 2019 as it was in 1500 BC when it was first written down. That if you're not willing to forsake even your family to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't get to follow him. If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow him at all costs, you cannot belong to him. If you continually succumb to idolatry of many kinds, going after all the things that you think will make you happy, and you willfully and secretly do this, do you really belong to Christ? If you want to live a life that's edgy and risky while pretending to follow Christ, you're a hypocrite in need of regeneration and in danger of judgment. Or if you would be a hindrance and a harm to the church of Jesus Christ by virtue of being willfully rebellious and stubborn and immoral and selfish and prideful, then ultimately the call to the church is to remove you from our midst. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Yahweh God and he is as concerned for the purity of his church as he was for the purity of Israel. God hasn't changed and his standards haven't either. Well, let's keep flying here. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And we haven't turned in our Bibles yet, so I'm just having you do this to keep you warmed up here. Exodus chapter 20. And we have the glorious Ten Commandments given here in Exodus 20. And very quickly, things get super practical. The last verse of the chapter. I've already read it to you, but I thought I would show you where it is. Exodus 20, verse 26, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So let's walk through our questions. What kind of law is this? This is sacrificial law, because this is in a worship context. This is in the context of coming before God. Question number two, what's the, principle, what's the purpose of this law in Israel's context? Well, Leviticus 6.10 says that the priest was to, coming to the altar was to wear undergarments. Why is that? And we're going to avoid the situation of embarrassment. Well, it's because of the curse of sin. Because with the exception of the context of marriage, nakedness is now symbolic of humiliation and degradation, a loss of purity before God. 
Why do we have dividers in bathroom stalls? Why do we have doors? Why do we have anything to protect our privacy because of the degradation of sin? And so to come before the altar of God in such a way which flaunted this loss of purity and approached worship parading this symbol of sin was not allowed. This was unacceptable to the Lord. So we could ask a third question. What's the universal principle found in this law? that we do not approach God in worship without regard for how we approach God in worship. We think about it. Worship is not a right. It is a privilege. It is a privilege. And sin and worship have no place together. And this instance in particular was concerning public worship of Israel at the altar. There was to be extra care in how you came together in worship. In fact, the Apostle Paul even commanded in a corporate worship context in the church for women, don't wear things that will be a distraction to others. Why? Because we we don't want to uh, have a lack of care in how we approach him. So a fourth question, how would we understand this law in a contemporary context? Well, obviously we don't have an altar. The altar was for sacrifice and Christ's sacrifice was the once for all atonement for our sin. But we do have a corporate worship context. We're in it right now. We, we have that context. And we don't gather together flaunting our sin before the Lord. We don't act like there's no difference between gathering for a picnic and gathering for worship. There is a difference. And then the fifth question, what New Testament passages explain this principle to the new covenant community now under the law of Christ? Oh, there's so many we could do. I'll just give you a couple Matthew five twenty three and 24, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, don't act like a jerk and then come to church celebrating God's grace. Don't be one who hurts and offends your brother and then comes and thanks the Lord for his graciousness to you. Don't flaunt your sin. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen and 18. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in the context of these fights and divisions in the church at Corinth, the apostle Paul gives instruction concerning the Lord's table and he warns them, don't take the Lord's table if you're part of the problem. He says later in the chapter, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. In another context, Jesus explained that even though we're fully forgiven as believers, we still commit sins, which these are sins which don't threaten our salvation, but they do threaten our worship. They do threaten our fellowship with the Lord. This is how Jesus said it. He said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He said that in John 13, meaning you're clean, but the sins that you commit in your walk on this earth, symbolically the dirt on your feet, They need to be forgiven to restore right fellowship, to come to worship. That's why we don't come to worship without confession. And so we praise God that 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. So we don't don't worship God with an unclean heart, with the nakedness of your sin showing. Let's do one more. I saved this one for last because I just thought it was the most fun. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Leviticus 19, verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. So question number one, what kind of law is it? Well, this is a symbolic law because there's nothing inherently evil or wicked about any of those practices. But this is one way which Israel would be shown to be different than her neighbor. She, she's different. So the second question, what's the purpose of this law in Israel's context? Well, it's to illustrate the concept of purity in everyday life. These are things that you would come in contact with every day. But what's the common thread in these three scenarios? 
mixing cattle breeds, mixing seeds in one field, and mixing two different kinds of cloth in one garment. The purpose in Israel's context was to remind them every day to keep separate the things God has divided, to keep them separate. So our third question then, what's the universal principle found in this law? That The principle is very simple. The Bible is filled with distinctions. And those who follow God keep those distinctions. If we really belong to the Lord, we don't just get to erase them or ignore them. And when God makes these distinctions, it's to remind us that he is holy and that we are to be holy as well. And so how do we understand this law in a contemporary context? The world desperately wants to erase all of the distinctions that God has given. In fact, if you want to know how to understand uh, political and social issues, just simply look at what distinctions are trying to be erased. The world desperately wants to erase the distinction of holiness that God has set up for his people. So the world tries to influence how we worship. The world tries to influence how we interpret scripture. The world tries to influence um, how we uh, are defined. The world defines Christians as bigots, as haters, as anti-everything, when in fact all we're doing is proclaiming the distinctions that God has already ordained. So does the New Testament address this? That would be our fifth question. What New Testament passages explain this principle to the New Covenant community? I think a good one for us to consider is 2 Corinthians 6.14. You probably have some of this memorized. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? In other words, don't enter into any partnership which may compromise your faith to keep that partnership. Now, this is most often applied to marriage, that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. That's a possible application, but that's not really the context of 2 Corinthians 6 at all. The context of 2 Corinthians 6 is the bigger scheme of the whole book, which is uh, concerns Paul's warnings against false teachers, against false apostles, whom he considers to be unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 11 says this. He was also afraid that associating with these religious unbelievers would cause spiritual harm. He said in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the bigger point of 2 Corinthians 6.14, not to be unequally yoked, is don't associate with false believers as if they're Christians. Don't buy the lie. What's the whole point of the seeker-sensitive church movement? It's to treat unbelievers like Christians and to welcome them into the church without a serious presentation of the gospel, which convicts and condemns sin and points to humble repentance. In other words, let's just be friendly. Let's just all get along. Let's try to erase those nasty, mean-spirited distinctions between Christian and non-Christian. We have way more in common with them than we don't. Well, how about this for distinctions from the New Testament? Children of God versus children of the devil. Children of light versus children of darkness. And sons of God versus the enemies of God. Those are distinctions. Another example, Ephesians four twenty-two and following. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. In other words, we're to be distinct. The church wants you to look like them, to act like them, to speak like them, to sin like them, to give false worship like them. And today, and this is just overtaking the church, today many would say that you have to, you have to do this in order to relevantly present the gospel. You have to look like the world, speak like the world. You have to get all the markings of the world. That I have to look like everyone that I'm presenting the gospel to You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. For those who would believe, Steve Swartz paraphrased, it doesn't need your help. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation, not my ability to infiltrate the world. And listen, the world is supposed to look at you and and they're not supposed to say, hey, you're just like me. They're supposed to say, you're not anything like me. You have something I don't have. Now, 
Do you see why we can and ought to pray with the writer of Psalm 119, verse 18? Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And I hope that you will read the law of God with a new appreciation and a new love and resonate with the very same psalmist when he wrote, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And he also wrote, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, 2 Timothy 3.16 is so clear that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. And Lord, may we never be guilty of saying that one portion of Scripture is more important than another. Jesus didn't say that. He affirmed that the law is good. The longest chapter in my Bible speaks 176 times of the goodness of the law. And so we would affirm this as well. And Lord, as as new covenant believers, sometimes we're uncomfortable with the Old Testament. Sometimes we're uncomfortable with the law of Moses. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to venture into those deep and rich waters. You would help us to venture into the great treasure which holds principles for our lives today without violating the covenant concept that you have set up, without violating the new covenant that we are certainly under the blood of Christ. There is no more animal sacrifice. We are not under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ. And yet, Jesus said that the law of Moses is good. And it's my prayer that we've seen that this evening. It's my prayer, Lord, that as we walk our way as a church through the Pentateuch and as our members are reading the law, that they would see those bridges and those concepts and and apply them to their lives to be more like Christ. Because when Jesus was asked what the law meant, he summarized it, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And that is the law of Christ, because he stated it. So might we look into your law, have our eyes opened, and see wonderful things. All for the sake of Christ and for his honor, we pray. Amen.